Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. I've recently started a new business called Bia that helps women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, irregular periods, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Natalie Mackey, to our show today. Natalie is the founder and CEO of Winky Lux, a joyful brand of clean makeup and skincare. Natalie is a serious risk taker and entrepreneur. She began her career in finance, but soon became drawn to growing companies as an operator. In 2015, she launched Winky Lux, which actually derived from another business idea she had that didn't work out, which we'll talk to in today's episode. Natalie has come a long way and had very humble beginnings with the business. Winky Lux has now grown to over 100 million in sales, and outside of their thriving e-commerce business, they're also in Target and Ulta beauty stores. We have a very wide-ranging conversation with Natalie today. We talk about how she launched the brand from finding suppliers to creating awareness, especially when they were self-funded in the early days, and how she really thought about creating viral moments early on as well, when and why she decided to raise capital and her personal experience going through the process, how she thought about Winky Lux and differentiated the business in a very saturated and competitive industry, her advice on letting go of perfectionism and not feeling like you have to do everything yourself in life and in business, and how her first child has made her a better leader and operator and so much more. Welcome to the show, Natalie. It's so great to be here. Thank you. Well, I'm a big fan of everything you've built. I want to jump into it because I have a million questions for you, but I'd love to start with a higher level quote. And this is a quote that I know you live by where you say, you don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. And I love this. And I'm sure it resonates with a lot of people listening, but would love to hear more about your thoughts around this quote. Totally. But I think that in general, the longer I've been on this entrepreneurial journey, the more female entrepreneurs that I've met and blessedly because they're sort of my saving grace, my friends who are entrepreneurs too. And one of the things that I've seen over time is I've met a lot of young women, older women, just women across the board who are have these big dreams and have really great ideas. And I think the other quote that I really live by is, 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. So love that. That is, you know, I think that you have to get in the weeds to build those muscles, those mental muscles and to learn your craft and to learn the business. And so so many times I meet these brilliant incredible would-be entrepreneurs who are as smart as anyone I know who's wildly successful, but feel that they have to get it perfect before they jump in. And I don't think that that's the case. I actually think you learn an absolute ton just being in it. Yes. And there's nothing better than starting. I mean, I was like that. I, w- I always thought to myself, okay, when I hit this milestone, I'm going to start my business. And then this milestone, and then, you know, I hit 30, 31, 32. And I was like, you know what? I've saved enough where I feel comfortable to make the leap and life kind of like allowed me to take the jump. And now that I've been in it, just operating, you know, now for two and a half years, I'm like, 
there is nothing better than just going right in because you learn, just like to your point, you are learning everything. There's nothing that I knew before this outside of my general work experience that of course helps, but there's nothing like really learning on the fly. Like you said, action and really being in the weeds is the best experience. And the hardest part is just taking that jump. And I want to actually go to your story. There's a lot of similarities with mine, you know, being in this world of finance, you had a very successful career in finance. And I'd love to hear more about the moment you realized to yourself that you were ready to take this leap, because there's so many women listening, and I've been there, you know, who have this corporate job, you begin getting good at your craft, you're getting paid well, you know, you're going up the ranks. It takes a lot of guts to kind of leave that reputation and start from scratch, which is what you did. So tell me more about the motivation around leaving your finance career. So I did work in finance and I would say, I call it my brief but brilliant finance career. I was only there for five years. And when, so I learned a ton, you know, I was a really the bottom of the totem pole. I was a lackey analyst. So I was doing lots of the grunt work, but the things that I learned there were extraordinary. A couple, some very tactical things like how to look at a P&L and how to decipher the health of a company based on that. And then some more, let's say, EQ things. And one of the things that I unfortunately learned was that it was harder for women to make it to the managing director level or to make it to the partner level. It was really, really tough. And the reason you knew that was because there were none there. So you would look up and say, okay, there's not really anyone here that I want to be or that I, that even looks like me or, or behaves like me. So even if I'm killing it at my job, this is not a place where I see a, a true path. And I think that has changed a lot in the 10 years since I was there. But there are still some sort of abysmal statistics around it, unfortunately. One of the things that I remember a conversation that was really game changing is I had a brilliant boss who was a really incredible investor. And I was having a conversation with him. And he said, you're really great with our investors, our investors in their fund. And have you ever thought about going into investor relations? And investor relations is a great job. It's amazing, but it's not where you make the big bucks. You make the big bucks by becoming a partner. And so I said to him, I'm not here to do this job to make that. I'm here to have your job. So I don't think I really want that. And I, 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 it was such a funny thing because it, that, it was around that time that I realized how much emphasis was put on, you know, is this the right lifestyle for you? Is this going to work out? Even if you're doing an incredible job, will you have, there was this, what they call the unwritten curriculum or the unspoken curriculum. And that is pretty common in the finance world. It's the reason analyst classes start out with 50-50 male, female, and MDs are, you know, significantly less. So I think that having an awareness of it is kind of the first way that that industry will change. But then also part of it was really great because that moment or that around that time, I realized that I was going to need to carve my own path. And I was lucky enough to have analyzed a lot of consumer products companies. And I probably knew just enough to be dangerous. And I had just enough bravado to think that I could probably do it and jumped overboard and, you know, started to dwindle my savings pretty fast. So that was the roller coaster ride of the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey. 
Yeah. And I know, so you left the world of finance and I believe the first dive you did into entrepreneurship, you were doing branding and financial consulting, right? I mean, clearly you were like looking at businesses, so I can see how that path is there. And I'm curious, when you took that leap, I feel like there's so much that happens at that time. Were you thoughtful about, okay, I have certain amounts saved. Did you downsize your life? Like, How did you really get comfortable about making that leap? Because as a consultant, you don't really know what ebb and flows of income are going to come unlike your more corporate job. I was not as thoughtful as I probably should have been. And in the beginning, I started a company with two other founders And it was really kind of a management consulting company. We really came in and helped brands either monetize their brand equity, or we helped them structure their sales team, or we helped them with sales in general. So we kind of were jacks of all trades, and we worked with a lot of consumer products companies. The nice thing about being in a client services business is it's very low startup costs. The unfortunate thing is that it's very hard to scale. So... You can only sell your time and then you can build a a big, great network of other smart people that you can sell their time. It's a different type of business than I was naturally inclined to. And so I was there for another five years and it was great. It was an amazing learning experience, but there was a moment when it was really, my passion was the products and I really, really loved the scalability of products companies. I had a sort of obsessive love for the beauty industry. I felt like it was selling magic and it was so incredible. And I loved all the people that I met in that industry. I felt like they were really smart. They were pretty collaborative. And I thought this is probably where I want to go. So I left and went on my, I, I just consulted on my own for about a year. And during that time, I wrote the business plan for Winky Lux which was originally a different company and kind of convinced my co-founder to, who's an old, old friend of mine to move to New York and start the company with me. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long-term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. 
but I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. And now let's get back to the show. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much I want to unpack there. I also think it's fascinating because you jumped into that career, the newer career where you were consulting, you were there for five years, which is a good amount of time. It's not like a short period or short stint. And you learn just your love for beauty, how much you love that industry and how building a product is more scalable than like you said, a service business. So that was an amazing learning. And then, so my question is, so you have this fascination for beauty. You found your co-founder, which is also super amazing. How did you know what that first or few products were? You mentioned briefly that it was another business. I actually didn't know that. So I'd love to kind of dig in there. Like, what were you thinking about building before Winky Lux like really came to life? So Winky Lux is a really fun conception story and birth story. It was originally supposed to be a tech-focused marketplace. Really? Yes. So my co-founder and I, my co-founder had run an e-commerce company for many years. And we've been friends for, at this point, we've been friends for two decades. But back then, it was 15 years and, or a little less, I guess, 14 years. Anyhow, we were very enamored with the idea of marketplaces they were very hot. In 2014, marketplaces were probably the hottest thing out there. They were very VC backable. They were exciting. Everybody was talking about all of them. And of course, a lot of them are no longer in business. (laughs) So it's, but at the moment in 2014, and this is sort of the way the business world works, right? Especially the startup world, there are industries du jour that come around every year or so. And so at this point in time, marketplaces were the hottest thing. And we thought they were really cool. It was an inventory light model. So we started to build this marketplace out. And the idea was it was going to be an affiliate driven business. We would have a really cool quiz that you would fill out and it would tell you what makeup to buy. So in a weird way, it was kind of ahead of its time. But what was interesting is that we started to do this focus group. And we ended up interviewing about 200 women. And our idea originally for the focus group was just to really hone in on what would the best UX and UI would be. What we found out was that people didn't really care about the marketplace. And so it it was amazing because the thing was just in beta. We had spent very little money on it. So we were in a really great place. But let me 
give you a little context too. Within the marketplace, you know, you're going to collect an affiliate fee from the brands you're selling, and that's how you're going to make money. But one of the things you can also do is have your own brand. And so we greened up this brand that was just an imaginary idea. And it was sort of all of the things that I liked. And it was this really wacky brainchild that was very fearless because it wasn't supposed to be the big part of our business. It was supposed to just be a side thing that we used to increase the margin of the whole business. So we started this thing. We named it after a dog, not even a real dog, an imaginary dog in a movie. It was really wild. Everybody was doing a ton of the whole aesthetic du jour was very minimalist. I mean, Glossier had launched the year before. Everybody was just very hot on minimalism. And we went total opposite way. We created this wild, heavily floral, neon, very, very extra branding. And again, this was, I mean, we you know designed the whole thing on a couple of pieces of paper. But we had a couple of the products that we'd ideated. We put them into the mock-up. And people were really interested in that. They really wanted to know about Winky Lux. So as we were discovering that our, our initial idea was garbage, we were also finding out that this other side idea we had was kind of a great one. And people were really interested in it. And during that time, we talked to a couple of our advisors, all of whom recommended that we did not start a brand. <laughs> they all said, don't do it. It's inventory heavy. It's highly competitive. It's a total shit show. Don't, you're going to be up against L'Oreal. Don't go into this space. And so, of course, we did it anyway. And the rest is history. But hence why we bootstrapped for the first three years. I actually had no idea about this story, but this is fascinating to me. I love it because it just shows that there's a couple of things that stand out. One of them, you guys really did your due diligence with the focus group, You know, not spending too much money to kind of prove out a concept because I think a lot of people make a mistake and overthink things, put too much money behind something before you really can prove out the concept. But you guys were also flexible enough to kind of listen to the consumers, right? They love your product despite investors say, or advisors, not investors, excuse me, saying it's a saturated market. You guys still went forward. But that was actually my next question. You know, beauty, you hear about it, right? They're telling you it's super competitive. It's super saturated. How did you guys have the confidence to still kind of move forward with that side project, right? The Winky Lux at the time and just still move forward despite what everybody was telling you? Ignorant confidence. I'm not sure. (laughs) The the blind confidence, probably we didn't internalize how tough it would be. And truth be told, it has been tough. We've carved out an amazing space for ourselves in the market, but it is a, it's an amazing industry. I love it. I have a dream job every day. I'm so grateful for it, but I also, it it is highly competitive. Mm -hmm. And so it takes a lot of work and a lot of people and a really smart team. I think we knew enough to be dangerous. We thought we could do it and and we did. Look, there's a lot of things throughout this journey that we thought we could do and we did not (laughs) and we failed at. But this was the whole idea of it was really powerful. This idea that a brand would be centered all around joy. It would be extremely maximalist. And at the time, really nothing existed in the market like that. There were some things that were really holdovers from a long time ago, but None of the new brands coming out were that ornate or had that kind of commitment to the aesthetic of the product. And so we were pretty, especially not in our price point, there was definitely okay. some extraordinary packaging and 
you wanted to pay $75 for a Christian Louboutin lipstick that hung on a necklace. I remember that being like one of the things we had and we were, we kept saying, this is so beautiful. This is what we want. But of course we couldn't, we didn't want to do that. We wanted it to be accessible. I know you guys have a pretty diverse supplier relationship, but early on, right, when you were just getting those few products, kind of walk me through how you guys were like cold calling and hustling. Because like you said, you didn't raise money until a bit later, which we'll go into in a bit. But you guys were completely self-funded bootstrap and were incredibly scrappy. So tell me more about what those early products really look like in building those supplier relationships. Totally. So our first products were lipsticks and inside of a bullet that looked like a pill. And they were inspired by this show that I went to where Damien Hurst had put all of these silver and gold pills into these trays. And they were supposed to represent the different things you're addicted to. And they were so beautiful. And that was the first product we launched. And the bullet was really unusual. It looked really pretty. It looked like a piece of jewelry. So that was interesting people were interested in it. And then we launched a facial powder that had a really cool new technology that was this crushed diamond raw ingredient. And it, before it had only been used in really high-end products, mostly skincare. And so we were able to use it in this foundation powder, complexion powder. And that did really well. And to this day, that's, I think, our second most high loyalty product. It's not a huge seller in our brand because we we have new amazing things, but that was sort of the OG and then we saw we were hunting, we were doing like inspiration and, and meeting with suppliers actually in Korea. And we saw some lipsticks that had flowers inside of them. And we went back and said, is there a way for us to do this in a winky way, which means we'd have to take out all of the bad ingredients and we would have to make it so that it didn't stink because the, the technology at the time was really kind of smelled like petroleum. It was it was a big challenge, but we were able to do it with our lab. And then that was our first product that really went viral. It was on the Today Show. And I think we sold $200,000 worth of product in a day. So that was a big, big deal for us. <laughs> huge. For a bootstrap company, that was like a huge deal. But one of the things we did, you asked about supplier relationships. That was something that we did right. That is something that I look back on. And I don't think that we had a it wasn't that intentional, but it turned out great. We really needed to find a supplier that believed in us. And, and we, needed, we needed to learn a lot more about manufacturing. We knew enough. Again, we knew enough to be dangerous. I knew enough because of my time before in consulting, I had met with a lot of beauty manufacturers. But so I've been on a factory floor before. I kind of knew how it worked. But I really, when I look back now, I think about what an idiot I was because they're really, I really did not know that much. When we started to look for suppliers, we ended up doing an entire tour of suppliers and we really committed to going and visiting a ton of them. Luckily, there are a bajillion beauty manufacturers in New Jersey and Long Island. There's a ton in California. We went out to California and then we eventually went out to China to visit some factories there as well. And we found a few suppliers one in particular who were really, really hungry. They, they were at the intersection of, they really want, they believed in what we were building. They weren't desperate. They weren't bad suppliers. They had a good business, but they really wanted to grow. They weren't sort of sitting on their laurels. They really wanted to grow and they loved the product and they loved the concept. And so they were the intersection of quality and ambition, if I could say that. And so 
they became a really big partner for us. They gave us really great terms. They really have grown with us. They've helped us with like amazing, even sourcing from other suppliers and helping us with quality control there and things like that. So they've been an incredible partner. And that I think is a mistake I've seen people make before as they go to one supplier who makes every supplier makes something in a luxury brand, right? So one brand very rarely uses all the same supplier. And I think when someone's just learning about the industry, they go in and they say, okay, well, this company makes this one amazing thing for Dior. And that's what I really want my brand to be like. And so I'm going to use them for everything. And that can be amazing if they're really invested in the business, but, you know, cause it could help you with having one relationship, but very, first of all, it, w- it won't be great from a product. Not every supplier is great at everything. So if you have a diverse product offering, you're probably not going to get the best of each one. And then on top of that, you haven't had a chance to really understand what the market is. Knowledge and relationships in that industry are pretty powerful. So I always recommend no matter what you're making, if it's a shoe or a vitamin or something to try and actually go and physically visit at least 10 factories. That makes a huge difference, not only in your knowledge, but in finding the best partner for you and the best partners for you. And you do want some diversity there too, because as we saw during COVID, it was a really big problem. If you had only one supplier and that supplier was backed up, you were really in trouble. We were lucky that we had you know a really big group. And so we were able to kind of lean on different suppliers for different things. That was a rant. Sorry. No, it was amazing. No, it's super helpful. And you guys had multiple suppliers like very early on. I know you highlighted one that had like the ambition and you built the relationship there, which I think is so important, especially when you're just launching. Early on, you still had a few that you met that became a good fit for you guys that early. Totally. That's great. Yeah. You don't hear that too often. Like typically I feel like people aren't spending time to going to visiting them in person. I'm actually taking mental notes for myself because we're struggling to find the right co-packers, especially as we grow, but also that you're diversifying so early on, even when you're not selling those huge amounts, it's just good to meet them in person and have them on standby or working on different products. That's great. But it is a huge part of building a business. Like you want to make sure there's a mutual partnership there, right? Like you said, they have to be excited, ambitious, because you don't want to be just another client of a co-packer and you can't be like innovative and work with them. And it's just such a relationship game. And it's great to see that even early on, was it before you really hit your viral numbers, were they giving you terms early on as well? Like how did they get comfortable giving you terms when you guys were so young? Well, I mean, the first, I think our first order, they, I think we paid upfront for our first order. And then we started doing a lot of really cool stuff with them. We started, you know, they were willing to do a lot in the lab without charging us lab fees. They were willing to do smaller minimums. We had some pretty wild ideas. We have some pretty wild products, <laughs> products that we have a blush that looks like a rose. We have a primer that's made in what almost looks like a whipped cream machine. It's like an entirely we have some bizarre stuff. It's really cool and it has a lot of joy and there's so much thought that's put into each of the products and they they really work and they're amazing. And obviously I'm not biased at all. So. <laughs> um, but we needed someone who believed in the dream. We needed someone who really, and our packaging supplier, you know, most packaging for us, most of our packaging comes from two plants and both of those plants have been 
you know, really incredible as we've grown and, and willing to do some really cool stuff. Look, there are certain things you might want to get done and there's only one or two people who do it and you might have to kind of deal with that. But what I've usually found is whenever I hit some sort of a wall with a supplier, if they're just really difficult or they're, they don't necessarily believe, or they're just hard to deal with. What I've usually found is if I kind of like hold on tight, if I, if I stay the course and I start cold calling and I find another and I go and visit a couple more or the team goes and visits a couple of more, usually we can come up with a solution. And that also gives you the power to say, we don't have everything with you and we don't have to stick with you if you aren't being nice to us or you're delivering late or you're not a real partner. Because look, I mean, they're in the business of making money too, right? They have to, they prefer big, large, exciting orders. The problem is you don't really get to those big, large, exciting orders until you have a product that sells millions of units. And we have several products that sell millions of units. But at one point, those products, we needed 2000 of them yeah. so, to test them and see if they were going to work. And we didn't want to buy 20,000 of them because they might not have worked. And, it, and if we had bought, you know, we have 150 SKUs in the collection. So if we bought 20,000 of each of those SKUs when we were testing something, yeah. we would be in pretty big inventory trouble. So I think about that a lot about is that person willing to kind of work with your business? Yeah. Ugh, I love this. And again, I learned this, you know, when we were doing a beta, I found a co-packer. He was super excited, but it didn't really pan out. And I wish I listened to my gut a little bit earlier. Luckily, we didn't launch. It just kind of delayed our launch. But everything you're saying, I think, is so, so critical in whatever industry you're in, if you're dealing with a co-packer. So I think that is all gold. I just want to underscore that. So let's talk okay. about, you know, you finally have these suppliers. You have a few products out. You guys got that amazing Today Show highlight. But tell me more about those scrappy days of how you really built awareness early, early on. Because Today's Show sounds amazing. So was that one of the biggest outlets that you did starting off like PR with TV? Or how'd you really think about it? Certainly PR helped. Certainly having products that were hyper visual in the world of Instagram. I mean, we're a little over six years old. So when we launched, Instagram was still really accessible. And it was a lot easier to build a following there. Now we're sort of more focused on TikTok because that's more of a growth channel. But at the time, Instagram was really exciting. And on top of that, our products were designed to be photographed. They're designed to be really special and beautiful to look at as well as use. And so we were very happy. That was a big win for us. Let's put it that way. The, the fact that we had focused on that turned out to be a really good thing. We did a lot of performance marketing as that became more and more expensive and less and less economically viable. We really started doing a lot more growth hacking, which we kind of had to do from the beginning. We held events. We did brand partnerships. We, we still do a ton of brand partnerships. We did sampling boxes, which we love to get the word out there. I just, we've been really hyper, hyper scrappy. I can't say we have one silver bullet. It's been sort of a collection of things that we've tried and tested. We generally, if something in the company is if there's an idea that someone has and it costs less than $5,000 to execute, we will usually try it. That's good. We'll usually give it a shot. If it's very expensive, like say we hosted a music festival for $5,000. So we were really, really, really scrappy. But you know, if, if it's a very expensive initiative, it'll be maybe a little bit more thought through. But generally, everything below that, we're willing to take a swing at it. Because we 
you can't really tell what, I mean, maybe some people are just so intuitive and so such amazing performance marketers. They're like, this is what's going to work for us. It's about, you know, can you tell the story in this idea? Can you tell the story? Will people understand what you're trying to communicate? Can you measure it? Mm. And is the channel growing? Is there a way to scale it if it works out? So for instance, we love to do events. They're amazing, but we, we don't do like massive expensive events because it's harder to scale them nationwide. Yeah. And I'm curious. I love the idea that if there's something less than 5K and obviously it's all relative to your business and how much you can afford, but the fact that you have this testing mentality and a certain cap, like I love that because I think sometimes in business you can get so bogged down in the nitty gritty that it's important to always remember, let's keep testing, let's keep pushing. Because like you said, you never really know what hits. So I'm curious, has there been a a more recent project that was in that 5K range that somebody had an idea on that you might have thought it would not work out, but it did? Like I'd love to hear anything around that. Well, we just did one that was just about as weird and fun as you could possibly make it, it, which is very on brand for us. We got a LinkedIn message from Applebee's that asked us if we knew how to make lip glosses that could taste like barbecue sauce. And so we basically we said, F it, let's try. We tried and we created four lip glosses that taste almost exactly like the sauces that you put on their wings. Oh and my gosh. It has been, I mean, rightfully so, it has had very mixed reviews from people, <laughs> but mostly positive, which is still amazing. I'd, I'd say it's like 70 30. You know, some people are like, oh my God, this tastes gross. It's like barbecue sauce. We're like, that's the idea. <laughs> so that has been wild. We, I think we had a billion social or we had a billion press impressions. You're kidding me. Oh my Our, the God. The music video that was created to support it has had 9 million views. I mean, on TikTok, it is really a... Wow. It's just such a weird... But that is the ultimate testing mentality, right? We don't believe that barbecue flavored lip gloss is like the future of makeup. But it's so freaking wild and insane and cool and such a novelty and so fun that we had to try it. And Applebee's was an amazing partner. And Gray's agency, who ended up doing a lot of the creative, they were an incredible partner in it. And so we we had just had like the best time doing that. That's a big testing mentality. Commercials. We have been running commercials for the past year and a half. And those have been really great. But there's a lot of things that have not I hate it when founders go on anything and they say, it's, it's all amazing. We had an idea and it just, it worked out. Like it's a lot of blood, sweat and tears too. You know, we've tried a lot of things that have not worked out. So anything that comes to mind, like one highlight that maybe it didn't work out that you guys thought. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them come to mind. We wanted to do a college program and we invested a lot in launching a college program that was pretty abysmal. We tried a recycling program. We're plastic neutral. and bef- But before that, we actually partnered with Uber to do this like very authentic and impactful recycling program where we, could, we partner with a chemical recycler because the dirty secret about beauty products is even the ones that are recyclable are kind of not recyclable because of the small parts. So we partnered with this company that actually can recycle them and turns them into building materials. And so we were super excited about that. We launched it and it was just so, the unfortunate thing is no matter how much we focused on the user experience of it, it's just too clunky. And so customers just were not willing to do that, to take that next step. So we've still partnered. We're still doing lots of recycling initiatives like upstream and then we're plastic neutral. But 
there's a lot of stuff we've tried that has been, and again, any, I think any founder who's like, it was all a dream. It was just so great. Probably it's either lying or delusional. Yeah, right. 100%. 100%. And people lie. I'm like, why? Oh, like, yeah. Which totally. is crazy. A new concept for me. I'm like, why are these people lying? But, you know, there's a story yeah. that comes to mind about a hardship. And this was very early in your business. I know you guys are on the Today Show. You sold out completely, like you were mentioning. And tell us about what the heck happened to your inventory. Because I have like heart palpitations just remembering that story. We had a FedEx box going to our warehouse that caught on fire, that was in an accident and caught on fire. Can you imagine? Oh my God. In the midst of one of our most, and thankfully no one was hurt. Yeah, I was going to say the driver. Our inventory was ruined. Our team was so, I mean, this was the early days, so we were only about six people and we really, we were up all night emailing and answering customer service emails and it was right around the holidays. And so we had a ton of orders we had just a bunch of angry customers saying, where's my product? And we had to email them and say, we're so sorry. The truck caught on fire, which I'm sure most of them thought was a lie. Yeah, I'm sure they like, were what? like, what kind, What lengths is this company going to? It was true. And so we made t-shirts that said like the bombs are on fire. We worked really hard to make sure all the customers who had late deliveries were properly cared for and loved on because... They deserve a better experience than that for sure. On the face of it, growing and scaling a business sounds amazing, but every founder I've had on have always had situations like yours, you know, things that you might not know what happened. I mean, your inventory went on fire, which is a huge mishap, or like you just don't have enough inventory to support the growth and you have angry customers, you might have like sold too much. But did you find that over communicating was helpful for the customers? Like any learnings you had from that experience? Because I'm sure you've also had other moments in the business where something else has happened, you've had to communicate that with the customer, whatever it is. Totally. I mean, our top core value is crown the customer. And so we're obsessed with our customers. And I know that sounds really trite and sort of tropey or, you know, it's true though. Our whole lives begin and end with her happiness. So his or her happiness or their happiness, just the customer's happiness. (laughs) World happy, world peace. So there was, we've definitely had our e-commerce customers. So we're available in almost 2000 targets. So chain wide and not quite chain wide. We're not in some of the mini targets, but we're almost all targets. About half of Ulta's and Anthropology, and, you know, a, a couple of other places. So we're, we're available in a lot of places, but our e-commerce customer is our most loyal, most ride or die, most, she's just like our family. We are obsessed with her. And so, you know, she talks to us a lot. We get so much feedback from that customer and generally communicating with her is a great idea, him or her. It's a great idea. Any customer we've had that buys twice is likely to become like a lifelong customer for us. So yeah, I would say in general, if a any any time a customer is even remotely unhappy, we try to bend over backwards to make it not the case. And if anyone has ever had not that experience, please email me. But I know they have because our customer service team is incredible. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your fundraising journey, right? I know you guys were scrappy, you're bootstrapped for the first three years. So tell me more about how you thought when it was time to raise capital and how you really thought about it early on. Well, it's always time to raise capital. 
we wanted to raise in the very beginning. And we sort of went out and, and poked around a little bit. There wasn't a lot of appetite for brands, especially in the beauty place. Right now, beauty is very hot and it has, it's an exciting place to play. And so over the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of funding in the beauty space. But pre that, you know, pre the last few years, it really, that wasn't the case. And it's amazing how quickly the headlines change. One industry will be very hot, then another industry. Beauty's always kind of the darling of consumer products, but it definitely ebbs and flows as, as far as like VC appetite for it. And at the time, it just wasn't that exciting for VCs. They weren't thrilled about it. They didn't really want to get involved with it. And I really thought I kind of knew that ecosystem. I felt like I knew how to fundraise. I'd seen it done in private equity. I'd seen it done on this really big scale. What I didn't realize is how different venture capital is from PE. And it is its own language. It's its own thesis around investment. It's very fragmented. There's a lot of players with lots of different types of investors. And I really had to learn that over those couple of years simultaneously while building the business. So it was sort of, you know, this thing that eventually as we were growing really fast, I knew we couldn't put it off any longer. And so I went and met with a billion VCs. I don't know, maybe a trillion of them, <laughs> every VC on the planet and did my like song and dance. And I learned a ton and we ended up raising a series seed and that was very exciting. And then about a year and a half later, we raised a series A and then what we called the like A plus as it was like a smaller amount of money. But in general, we haven't raised a ton. I mean, I say that we've raised about $12 million in total, given our size, that's, that's a significantly less than some of our competitors who are the same size. So we've still kept a lot of that scrappiness for better or for worse. I don't think that there is a specifically right way to raise capital or to grow your business really depends on how you want to grow as a founder uh, and as an entrepreneur what your end goal is, et cetera. So, you know, for some people raising nothing is the way to go and bootstrapping forever is the way to go and owning hundred percent of their company is the way to go. And sometimes I'm very envious of those people. And then- So how did you others, think about it for you? Yeah, I'd love to hear how you thought about it for yourself. You know, I think that we're in a very competitive marketplace. And so for us, we felt like in order to break through, we would have to get some capital to fund it. Otherwise we were going to have to grow super slow super duper slow, especially with retail expansion. I mean, when we launched at Target, we launched in every uh -huh. single door with two feet, and then we grew to four feet. So that is a big investment on Target's part, but it's a huge investment on our part. So there's display costs, there are marketing costs, there's just an, a lot that goes into expanding a business that way. And it requires cash. Like there's no way around that. You have to, there's display alone costs, you know, can be a million dollars. So it's a really, it's a big investment. And I felt that we needed that to break through the competition. And truth be told, look, look, there are lots of different ways to do it. Glossier, for instance, raised a ton of money and grew extremely fast. And jury's out on how that will work out. But that worked for them. That was like great. They, they had the culture for it. It was kind of what they wanted to do. And then, you know, I have friends who are founders who've raised nothing. So it's really a, 
question of how fast you want to grow, what space you're in. If you have a super niche product, sometimes you don't even have to because you can kind of own your space. But we were in color cosmetics, which in case no one has gone to the store, there's about a billion color cosmetics brands. So in order to break through, we needed to we needed to fund some of that. I think that's super helpful because again, we glorify fundraising. You hear about all the companies that raise like 10 million on an idea. And it's like in real talk, it doesn't work like that. And just you kind of walking through how you thought about raising capital and why and like the space you're in. I think there's just so many levers that you need to consider before going down the path. So I always think it's just helpful to just talk through. And also for you guys, what I love is that you also had product market fit. Like you guys were growing well before you started raising capital. I know it wasn't intentional because people weren't fundraising in the beauty space at the time, but I'm sure it helped in terms of when you were ready to fundraise, you guys already had that momentum, right? Totally. It did. Although, you know, it's funny, the whole VC ecosystem is really, I think we all would love to believe that it's super thoughtful and that there's these like geniuses and blue vests out there making these decisions. But there's a lot of groupthink. There's a lot of bias. I mean, we know that 2% of all cap- venture capital dollars go to women. So I don't think that that's self-selection. I don't think statistically anyone could argue that that was self-selection. And so there's a, well, there's a lot of challenges. And what's interesting is I have talked to founders, most of the time they're guys, who generally want to have no revenue before they raise because the whole idea is their potential. I don't know if women get the luxury of doing that. I don't know. I wish that the world was not that way. A lot of the female founders I know really proved some things out before they went out. Some did it more efficiently than others. And some, I mean, I have friends who are just master fundraisers. It can be done. It's just a matter of like really committing to understanding that ecosystem, committing to thinking through like what is an appropriate VC fundable business as well. I mean, that's another thing to think through. Like they're having, you know, I think for the longest time, Glossy, and I hope I don't sound like I'm picking on them because I think I think we should give credit where credit's due. That's that as as a cult following that brand. But for a long time they said we're a tech company that sells beauty products, which is a really convenient narrative for a tech investor. <laughs> so we were always like, we're a products company. We make a product, we sell it for more than we make it. So it's kind of a simplistic business. We saw on the internet, but the internet isn't a new thing anymore. So sort of like required. No, totally, totally. And I think it's just good to have these conversations because there's so many different ways to approach it. And like you said, there's some people who enjoy the fundraising process. I mean, it's kind of like a full-time job. I can't even imagine the momentum you guys were seeing and how you're fundraising at the same time. I really don't know how you did that. Was it just like pure chaos in your life at the time? Or did you have like a, a team that was able to manage? But the growth you saw is still kind of crazy to still fundraise during that. <laughs> oh, it, it was bananas. I mean, I think like every, there's a lot of things that I just, I really like about what I do. And so there are some things that just don't feel that hard. And during that time, working on the business didn't feel that hard. It felt just, we were on the flywheel. So there was just all these things coming at me all the time and you just had to deal with them. And I loved my team and I love, you know, my co-founder is like a brother to me. So that part wasn't as painful. The fundraising part is a lot more is a lot more challenging because I think you have to mentally steal yourself for, I mean, in essence, you are going around and kind of showing people your baby and they're telling you your baby is ugly. So 
devastating. One out of 50 is like, I kind of like that baby. Okay, I'm going to buy that baby. So it's a really emotional and it takes a good sense of optimism and fortitude to sort of not take anything personally. And then of course, too, there's a ton of investors out there. Some are more sophisticated than others. Some understand industries more than others. And so there's a kind of a big learning curve for some uh-huh. of them. So that can also be frustrating. I mean, we definitely had our fair share of bizarre and silly questions thrown at us. So, you know, and then you're sitting there going like, oh my gosh, this is the guy that's controlling all the money. This dude, this guy doesn't understand anything about this industry. <laughs> so you have to be ready. Yeah. Right. You know, it's interesting because you've touched upon fundraising. So much of it is like having the mindset to kind of be in those tough situations, but all of entrepreneurship, right? Like not everything is glamorous. You've had your fair share of challenges. I'm sure you're dealing with challenges even right now. Are there certain practices that you have on a daily basis that allows you to really like step away from the business or help you be more resilient or just make sure your mindset's together? Because like you, when you love your business, I love your business. I'm literally working on it all the time. Even if I'm not working, I'm thinking about it. So it's tough for me to disconnect. And I'm just curious, like, how have you really worked on your mindset or really like disconnecting in some capacity if you have? I have been bad at it. Having a kid really helped me become a better entrepreneur. And so my daughter really lives in the moment and she's pretty full time, right? When I'm with her, she requires quite a bit of attention. So I have to shift what I'm thinking about. I'm forced to take my brain away from the company for a minute. And I'm forced to organize my life in a much more formal way. And I think that that has made me such a it was much stronger leader, for sure. I mean, even practice of going away on maternity leave is such an incredible practice for a founder, because you are in the business of dealing with all your problems, right? And then all of a sudden, you have this impending thing where you're going to be away and so you have to, it's, it's like your first baby and you have to prep your first baby to live without you. And so you get your first baby in really good shape before you leave. And it's funny, I have an investor, they're like a smaller investor in the company, but they so gal ventures and they are incredible. I just, I love the team there. And we, I was talking to one of the partners, Elizabeth Galbett, who was saying that for a big part of their portfolio like a lot of the women who've had kids during the scaling of the business have actually, the business has accelerated far more post having the child. And I think part of that is that you're forced to put in a very good team and start to work more on pathfinding. So when you come back from that maternity leave, now you're ready. Now your your team can handle the whole company. And so now you're really thinking about like, how are we, what's our big new mission for the next year? What are all these new paths that we're going to find? it gives you a chance to really behave as a big company CEO. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm so inspired by this. It's something that I've been talking to a lot of founders about. I don't have any kids yet, but again, like just launched a business. We're getting momentum. It's still new. My first baby, I swear, I feel like it's my child. And I'm like, how do I make sure we still succeed in the event where, you know, I'm on maternity leave and, you know, your body's shifting. Like I can't go so hard like I do now, but I also don't think, and it just it's interesting to hear your experience and what the, your investor mentioned. I also don't think always working so hard in the day to day will 
necessarily really take you to the next step. Like, I love the fact that you said maternity leave. Like, how do we create that even if it's not maternity leave? Like, how do we just take a day off to just zoom out? Because we're all in the weeds. And that's where I see myself just like really working on. So just to hear how having a child can only help you succeed in business. Like, I love that. And I'm super pumped to experience it one day because I can see how that would work. So Thank you for sharing that and being an inspiration for so many because I feel like a lot of people say like, how do you manage a kid? People ask me like, oh, you're still going to run your business. I was like, why do I have to choose between like a personal life and a business? I'm going to do both and still be super engaged in both, you know, and still be involved. So just seeing examples like you, like I love that. So I appreciate you kind of sharing that. Thank you. It's sort of a misconception, I think, in the industry or in general that one is antithetical to the other. It certainly has not been for any dudes. Right? By I'm the way. Like, yes, exactly. <laughs> when, was the, when was the last time they were trying to pick a Fortune 500 CEO and they were like, oh, I don't know, that guy's got kids. I don't right? know if he'll be really engaged. <laughs> so it does require just a ton of planning though. And a lot of, I don't want to make it sound like it's so easy, but it, it definitely, it could definitely be done. In fact, I think it can be a huge asset. I'm sure it will be. Yeah. And I think what you said, just planning in general, like whether you have a kid or not, planning is just so crucial in business, right? Again, taking that step back to plan, especially totally. when, when you want to be involved with like so many things, like have a family or not have a family, have multiple businesses. It takes just sitting down and organizing everything, which sometimes it requires a kid for you just to kind of get a little bit more organized for some people. So I can see how that definitely makes sense. And, you know, and one thing that you've mentioned is one of your biggest challenge in another interview is you, or maybe you've changed now, but in the beginning, you felt like you had to do it all. I think that's a, a mentality that many of us have, including myself, and we're growing as a team. And still, I'm not used to getting out of that mindset. I'm like, oh, I have help. I'm still used to trying to do it all. And, and I don't know why I still feel that way. But how did you kind of shift out of that and get over that mental state? Oh, you just this is my passion. I really, I really hope that I I get to this sort of guru level of this at some point, this like self grace, both in life and in business. For some reason, I find that and look, I'm sure there's tons of men that suffer from this too. But a lot of, you know, type A people who are entrepreneurs and, and love building things, they have almost a punishing expectation of themselves that they should be particularly good at these 25 things. And it's ridiculous. I mean, it's not, if you write it down on a piece of paper and look at it, you go, this is the most absurd thing I've ever read. You would never tell someone to be amazing at these 20 things at the same time. I think that I am really good at, in business, my job is to keep money in the bank, to set the strategy and to hire the best people out there. And right now I serve as our creative director too. So that's already one extra thing that probably should just be the three. So that's what I'm really good at. And that's what I need to focus on. And everything else really should be. And I need to let go of this idea. And I've gotten much better at it. I'm letting go of this idea that every little thing needs to be perfect. And then the other one is just in life too. That sociologically, we, always, we don't always give female founders as much grace as we should. They're kind of expected to be gorgeous and have yeah. perfect homes and be amazing wives and mothers and run big companies and play tennis and yeah. do Pilates. And you're like, this I'm is like, not when? realistic. <laughs> yeah. I think you can probably do like three things well at a time, you know, and attend fabulous events. I think when you see that, that's usually like a, either a veneer or it's 
like a fake business. I don't know. Or it's like a business that nobody is really running or someone else is running. So in general, most of the like really incredible women that I admire who've really reached like stratospheric heights, they have been amazingly good at setting pretty clear boundaries. They've been really good at understanding like where their highest and best use of their time is and outsourcing pretty much everything else and not feeling an ounce of guilt about it because there really isn't. I mean, I want to spend a ton of time with my daughter, but I probably don't need to do her laundry. Any time I can spend with my kid, I want to spend with her, but I don't particularly need to pack her lunch. So, you know, I think really letting go of that and saying like, it's all right. You didn't need to do that in the first place. Like she's not going to grow up and be like, oh, if only my mother had dropped that call with China so she could come and pack my lunch. I just don't see it. So yeah, we had the founder of Health Aid here and she said like, I used to love cooking. Like she just genuinely loves making food. She's like, but it just got to a point where I'm like, I can't run a business and they were growing and her and her husband had two young kids. She's like, I just have to get over the guilt and be like, I have to outsource or else I can't manage the business. And she's like, and now it's fine. But similar story. She's like, I just had to realize I cannot be a part of everything and just be okay with getting help. And I think that's important to talk about because like you said, there's an expectation of women who run businesses doing it all. Some people are like, oh, she's so lucky that she has help. And it's like, well, if you are running a business, let's talk real about what goes on behind the scenes. Like you have support with your child or you live near family where they come and help you or you ask someone to do laundry. Like I just love being realistic about if you're wanting to do big things, what is a support system that you need behind you? Because people think women do it all. And I think you're just setting yourself up for failure, right? Like, oh, it's and, and depression and yeah. sadness, right? So, yeah. and, and just the feelings of overwhelming guilt, which don't really serve any purpose. And you can be such an, I, mean, I know so many incredible moms, so many entrepreneurs that are extraordinary moms. And everybody, look, all working moms have some level of guilt. But the reality is just the the thing that you can give your kid in that moment, especially since I have a daughter, having her watch me work really hard and valuing hard work is like a value that I want to pass on to her. I'm passionate about that. And that doesn't mean that we don't spend time together. We spend a ton of time together. It just means that I try to organize everything in a way that I am doing as little as possible when it comes to those little day in day out things, because kids are constant little day in day out things. I'm spending a lot more time like just playing or reading books or going to the playground. My Zen mission (laughs) is to get to guru level and like releasing the guilt, releasing the bad feelings and just giving myself and anyone else, you know, a ton of grace around. And this is life in general is hard. Life adding on a kid, adding on a business is it's a lot of plates in the air. Totally. It's a lot of fun too. Yeah. Yes. And I love it. It's like, I was just thinking about your mission with Winky Lux is like, how do you always incorporate joy? And it's like, it's so important to incorporate joy in our own life, right? Because like you said, there's always going to be something that happens, whether it's something happens with a family member, friend, baby, you know, whatever it is, business. How do you just make sure you're always living in the moment and incorporating joy in some sense? So I think love the mission around just your life and business and everything. But Natalie, this was so much fun. I could have talked to you so much longer, but it was such a joy having you join us today. Thank you. You Thank you. It was so great to get to know you. And yeah, I hope we meet in person next time you're on the East Coast or I'm out in LA. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.